This is Strange Assembly, episode 188. The return, except a little bit further north this time. All right, so do you remember in episode 187 how we started it off by noting that, you know, maybe we were never going to get Brian Weiser Fred Wan to actually come on the show to talk about L5R again? Well, um, while Jay and I were recording that episode, <laughs> we ran into someone on Skype. And, and who is this? Hey, everybody. It's me again. That is Fred Wan. Formerly of the Legend of the Five Rings story team, now of the guy who does panels at PAX? Um, I do some freelance narrative work in video games, and yeah, I do panels at various cons. Uh, I'll be doing my third year in a row at PAX if everything continues going according to plan. And Jay is still here. Hooray! Right, and this is still... I'm here anyway. Yes. And this is still Strange Assembly, your tabletop gaming podcast. Check us out at strangeassembly.com. So for any continuity questions, this may be a, a bit of a lag between when we record this and when we, we release it, because literally we are recording this immediately after having recorded 187. So we just added Fred into the, the existing call on Skype and are, are now merrily proceeding with our are recording here. So, some of you may remember that there was this Legend of the Five Rings thing that briefly existed and has now been gone for like 12 years, I think. Never heard of it. And Fred worked on that for a little bit, so we thought we'd talk about it some more. Sure. It's a bit odd. I I, I think for both Fred and I, we've... It's now been long enough since I've really actively thought about L5R a lot and been long enough, I think, Fred, since you've worked on L5R, it's what we had sort of maybe we're going to talk about in this L5R story retrospective has faded a bit out of our brains. I think that's fair to say. I mean, like, there's always going to be stories about both the game itself and the process of working on it and so on, but the specific stuff we had in mind... Real life has gotten in the way, and you can only remember so much in your brain at a time, right? Yeah, yeah. So, I guess the, the most basic sort of thing to talk about is, so what was the story going to be? And then, I also think it might be interesting to, I don't know, we don't want to take forever, but sort of go back a little bit at some of the, I don't know, let's call them inflection points, even though it's not really a proper use of the term, mm-hmm. for the story to see how it changed. Because from the outside, it, it felt like there was a good amount of change up. Yes. Like from, from where I sit, it feels like we went through, say, Celestial, and a lot, it felt like during a lot of that, there was like Samurai was largely seeding for Celestial, and then Celestial was its own thing, but then started seeding for the, the Brothers Destiny stuff. Then we jumped and did that. And, and maybe partially because that was this included the stretch where the the story team was kind of not there. Mm-hmm. It felt like you guys had more that you wanted to do with that. And like I thought it was going to last another year, a year longer than it did. And then it 
just just kind of like oh, and now it's done. And that may have from again from the outside that somewhat coincided with a new brand manager coming on and wanting to do what turned out to be Onyx edition with the sort of let's go back to L5R roots where the Spider Clan stops being a sort of half normal faction and becomes big evil Shadowlands again and it's all everybody in the Empire versus the Shadowlands and the big huge evil and so that felt like the Brothers Destiny kind of had to wrap up mm-hmm. so that that could start to get rolling and then we know that after the the basic framework for that had been laid out and yet another brand manager came in and we know that he like he from the outside, it felt like he was not really excited about the story that he was inherited. He had inherited that it was something that he would never have done. And so, I mean, it, like that's what it felt like. Mm-hmm. He was not a fan of the spider kind of going, I don't know if it was going away or, or significantly transforming to kind of just be Horde again, and or the Mantis just getting exploded and and kind of redoing their build-from-nothing storyline. We had the Mantis going out and the Naga coming in, and then Dave had basically come back and said, oh, but the Mantis are going... We're, we're not actually going to have your faction stay out. You're going to come right. back in. And and just the way that it felt with some of the the paths. He introduced the path thing, yep. which I thought was very interesting, although I thought it had some execution quibbles. But, like, for example, with the Spider, it really felt like... The decision had been made that the Spider were going back to the Shadowlands Horde, and then he reintroduced this notion through the paths of letting the Spider Clan players choose to go back to Horde or not. Mm-hmm. So I guess two things. One, how completely nonsensical are those perceptions of mine from the outside? And two, as I'm saying that, how much of a negative effect, if any, do you think that it had on the story in particular or the game more broadly to keep going through these leadership changes. Okay. Uh, let's start with the big picture talking about, we'll call it turnover, right? Cause that is kind of the term of art for people coming and going. Turnover, as we know from business generally is never good, right? Like it's at least not rapid turnover. It's always challenging because you have lack of continuity of vision. And you have to get new people up to speed and so on and so on and so on, right? Um, and I think one thing that most players weren't entirely aware of is the amount of uh, direction of story that would come from brand or design, not because design necessarily explicitly wanted to dictate the story, but because if you're going to do a certain mechanical theme, then there has to be an explanation for it, right? So definitely there were times where it became difficult to foreshadow or plan or challenging at least because the overall direction and the themes of the story and the major plot points as a major adversary uh, were not being decided uh, at my level, certainly, right? Like Sean might have been involved in those conversations, there were definitely times where I was just informed of what would happen next and it would be different in kind from either A, what I thought would be compelling storytelling or B, what I had planned on. 
which has always been part of the game because that's the nature of story prizes. But at the same time, I think on a, a, the big picture level, there were definitely some arcs where it's fair to say that different brand managers had different visions on what to emphasize or what even the major strokes of the arc should be. Uh, it was also fair to say that there were times where um, I personally thought X, Y, or Z story plot was a good or a bad idea. And it, it creates a significant challenge because it also means if we have a big winter tournament and a certain prize is offered, and then you have a transition to a different brand manager, how that prize fits into the storyline as a whole will change, even though the wording of the prize has not, or and it's already been awarded. So definitely there were times where where if it emotionally, if not intellectually, there were times where I'd be like, just pick someone and stick with them so I have the same person to work under. But yeah, so it, it you know, having having you know, and I'm sure there were reasons for the turnover it but it at the AEG kind of corporate level. But in the trenches, yeah, there are always going to be difficulties when someone says, let's make this arc about this. And I'm like, but a few months ago, under a different person, you know, we were told to make this arc about this. And it means you have bumpy transitions, particularly because everything has to coincide with each other in terms of publishing and distribution and so on. So, yeah, it, it definitely created challenges. And... Sometimes that gives you an opportunity opportunity to have that, you know, spark of real creativity and real inspiration. And other times you're just doing your best to keep up, right? And definitely I think, I personally think it was, you know, not because any of the individual managers were hard to work under either. It was just when you've got transition and change, then you've got to spend more time and energy adapting to the change and less just kind of working on what you want to work on, right? And and I do think one of the things that would have su- that did suffer was when we had individually or as a team like things where we wanted to do this, you know, and and we knew how many fictions we had to set aside for meta plot specific advancement. If the meta plot changes, then some of the previous fictions we've already written to advance Metaplot no longer advance it enough, which means fictions we want to tell for the sake of telling those stories have to not be told so we can go back to telling Metaplot stuff, right? And so on a purely personal, not in the sense of personal feeling, but personal professional assessment level, it would have been nice if the story team had a more windows to guide direction, I think. But but that's easy to say. Again, uh, I'm sure there were various thoughts at a corporate level on why we didn't, but, but I certainly do think um, it would have been easier to work on if uh, there had been not just less change, but kind of better process of integration of change. Um, so yeah, there, there, there were challenges, absolutely, right? And, the, and you know, I'm I don't say that in the sense of slagging anyone either. It's just observation of the reality of working in any environment where you have um, changeover. Well, and I guess before I I 
bring it back around to the the specifics of what would what you guys had going down with the the story mm-hmm. near the end there. I that also you know that conversation brought me think of a, I guess a similar sort of thing, which was another thing that again sitting here from the outside that seemed to have a negative effect on the story, mm-hmm. especially again once the story got sparser and it was harder to just work more stuff in was was some some of the event and product driven story for examples of that i would say the gen con story about the god beast yeah that seemed like as a plot that seemed completely nonsensical and pointless mm-hmm. it seemed like the sort of thing that somebody sat down and said we've got to have a prize to give away at gen con make up something for them to kill so the prize can be kill it right and then in the sparser time frame, when you had uh, Coils of Madness, it seemed like this just diversion. Yeah. Panku popped up out of nowhere, ate up all this story time, and then vanished again with something that really did not cohere with much else that was going on right then. I mean, there was there was some with the general notion of what's up with these these non-traditional people not doing what they're supposed to be doing out in the colonies, but really only loosely. I don't know. So again, are those, perhaps my perceptions are completely unfounded, but, you know, working on the inside, how did you think that affected the crafting the story? I, I think there have definitely been times where we were informed that we needed a prize for a certain event and the prize or, or actually, there have been times where prizes did not go through us, right? So I think it is fair to say some prizes were not as inspired as others, and some were not executed. Well, I mean, I'm friends with Andrew and Robbie and so on, and I think and Danny, and I think one of them won the God Beast Prize. So I've certainly talked to them about how they felt it was kind of a throwaway and not satisfactory. And I think, you know, objectively, it's not one of the greater prizes, right? Like, that's just assessment compared to other Gen Con prizes. And, like, without getting into, well, I wrote this prize, and it's amazing, and that person wrote that prize, and so on, um, I do think it is fair to say, as a general point, that the times when story had greater involvement at the planning stage, and at the concepting stage, tended to go over better with fans um, and tended to be more thoroughly integrated into the story as a whole and were more emotionally satisfying for the people who won them and for the fans to read. I think that that's accurate. And so I will you know, agree that there were some prizes that felt very strategically designed, we'll say, for to, to, you know, have prizes for events. And without saying whether any particular prize was, mostly because it's been a long time, and it's hard to remember who exactly wrote uh, uh, certain prizes or events, I think it is fair to say that there were times where story prizes were used as prizes in a way that I feel did not help the storyline and the fan engagement as a whole. I also freely admit it was not my call to make. 
in that, like, literally, it wasn't my call to make, and I didn't get to make it, right? So uh, I was in the position of executing. Okay. And I'm going I'm to ask you a, a, ask you in a specific way, and I'm, you're not going to answer, but I'm going to ask it anyway. But at least, you know, say I'm not going to answer because you should sure. be able to remember. So okay, you may not be able to remember, oh, all the details of all of these things, but out of out of all the time where you worked on the, the story team in whatever capacity, what what was the, the single biggest time that, that stood out as, as something that you got told that, oh, yes, this is what's going to happen? And your, your inner voice was like, what is wrong with you? That is awful. I, I know exactly what event uh, that would be. And yes, it did happen. I am deciding right now whether or not I should actually tell you what that is. <laughs> um, I will say that there have been times where uh, there were public announcements about what the prizes for certain events would be. And that was when I found out what the, that A, that that event was scheduled, and or B, that that was what the prizes were, and I was not even asked for input, let alone... I wasn't asked for input, nor was I told in advance. And I remember at least for one set of events, I was like, on my first read, there is a huge problem here, and it's too late because the fans have already... and it's already gone out. And then the problem I saw came to light and became a major issue. So uh, I'm not directly answering it, but yeah, yeah, that has. <laughs> right? and, and like in fairness, though, like I said before we started, I've been working on this game, depending on what metric you use as working on, somewhere between 14 and 16 years, right? Like you expect something like that to have happened in that span of time unless your, your tenure has been super uneventful. Structurally, I think it, that could have been mitigated against in terms of how you know different people were involved. But like like I said, in, in that long of a time span, I'm not surprised something has happened, right? Particularly in a game that is quite so back and forth as all five are, right? Like that, that everyone is involved with everyone else. But yeah, that's happened, sure. Obviously, there's a need to accommodate story results, but do you? Do you think it would be fair to say that L5R would have benefited from if the staff had had more of an opportunity to to really long-term plan things so that even if, yeah, brand's going to ultimately be making the decision about what the prize is and story is going to have to work out about that, if you know, if you decide in the summer of 2013 what the 2014 Gen Con prize is going to be and you have that more sort of more long range planning that would give a lot more of an opportunity to have things integrated and flows flow smoothly in the story and in the, the product. I'm going to answer this in a kind of as direct as I can, but it will be a little bit meandering. Okay. I think one of the core success points of L5R is players both feeling and having meaningful impact on the evolution of the story. I would suggest that the people who are best equipped to say, here is where we can let the players do that, is the story team. Just flat out. So I am totally happy with doing really meaningful, big changes that can reverse the direction of the entire narrative. But I need to be able to be the one who says, here's where they can do it. And here's how. 
because I'm the one who has to execute. I can, uh, because, you know, I know what won't work because I've, some of it I've learned the hard way and some of it I've, you know, managed to thread the needle. And I say I, not just to mean me, but I mean the team, both past and present, right? So I think there does need to be a need for high-level strategic planning. I also think that that planning actually is identifying the stress points and and where things can change, right? Like, I can foreshadow blah, 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 big event, right? And have planned out contingencies for various clans winning or losing. I also think one of the things that would have been nice to have as a quiver is certain events can only be, can the main, the main prize can only be won by three clans, not all of them, right? And from a business perspective, that might or might not work. Right? <laughs> that seems like a tough sell. No, seriously, right? But narratively, I think, there are there are ways that I can construct it for, for example, the winner has to pick one of these three. Their clan becomes a major part of one of those three winning, right? Or something like that. And don't get me wrong, I, I totally appreciate that design-wise and brand-wise, and, and mostly it's brand-wise, right? Design can even work around that. There are reasons why you want every clan to feel like they get the big prize, you know, a, a shot at the big prize, right? But there are definitely some times where narratively, I think the game works smoother if I was allowed to, or both, and I say allowed in the sense of either business-wise or whatnot, to have a little bit more flexibility in structuring tailored story events, which is just a challenge, right? And that's a reality of working in gaming generally, so I'm, I'm not meaning that as a criticism of anyone. But, you know, it makes sense story-wise, if you're emphasizing certain things or certain characters to say, well, Dragon and Crane automatically get someone into the top 16 of Emerald Champion. Right? So if if for some reason nobody in those two clans makes top 16 on record, two slots are reserved, one for each clan. Those sorts of, you know, little to medium-sized things, because don't get me wrong, from a TO perspective, these are not trivial. Right, and you've run events, you know that. But they help the overall feel of the universe, and they can be used to integrate in things strategically to try to uh, to try to mitigate other factors. Like um, one of the things that I was pushing for for big events only, because it's an administrative nightmare, is like you know a diversity rule as a standing rule where every clan for the really big events, you know, get someone into the cut, period, no matter how weak the clan is. And you can't do that all the time. And we did do that for most Gen Cons, right? But but for certain events, I would have loved to have said, you know, uh, this is something involving knowledge of how to fight the Shadowlands. Phoenix and Krav automatically get someone into the post-cut round, right? And... And you can also do that consciously and, and not consistently, but consciously to also help, you know, mitigate against relative strength and weakness in the metagame, right? Like, I might only invoke that rule if, uh, or that principle during particular eras where particular clans are really bad, but story-wise you want them to be portrayed. You know, stuff like that. 
which for personnel resource constraint reasons, legitimate personnel resource constraint reasons, we're not all we're not you know usually on the table, but would have been neat, right? I think as a TO, that's oh no, it's brutal. Oh no, no, I would no, I was actually going to say if if you have a a TO who's on the ball, I don't think that's an issue. I've heard it depends on the TO and it depends on the event, right? Like I, I am all I'm trying to say is it's not trivial, and I know it's not trivial, right? It is extra work. And, you know, it also opens up the team and AEG to uh, accusations of being, of favoring certain clans. Yeah, oh, that Fred, he just loves Crane, so of course the Crane always get him. And you know what? On some level, I would be like, you know, for, for story reasons, for this event, yes, I am favoring these clans. In fact, I am labeling myself as favoring these clans. That's why this is here, right? You know what um, we'd have? We'd have, we just have arguments on the boards where people would be like, oh, well, they should make sure that this is distributed evenly through the clans. And then the crane forms would say, well, wait a minute, we invented all aspects of Rokugani culture, so really anything that's a tournament, we should have somebody in. But, you know, and don't get me wrong, um, actually, you know, towards later years, the crane forms were actually really good in that they were not, they were separating out them lobbying for their clan and them objectively analyzing what their clan is entitled to, Right. And I think there is a distinction, and you can tell when someone's writing which perspectives are coming from. In earlier years, I would agree the crane forms are not so good for that, right? And, you know, it comes and goes, right? Every clan has, every clan base had eras where the players, I, I am always for enthusiasm, but I'm also for players being able to recognize where their clan is not as strong. Right. Or where their clan legitimately has hubris. Right. And and that kind of thing opens us up to those sorts of allegations. I think the net benefit outweighs the net costs. But. I freely acknowledge it is not an unconditional, strictly superior situation. Right. Like it's a trade off. And you do it in a principled way and you, and you take the feedback and you tweak depending on how people respond to it. But my general principle was I want people to have opportunities to have their decisions matter. I want them to know that and I want them to feel that. And I want them to feel fulfilled in getting that opportunity, right? But for example, meaningful sometimes means you don't get everything you want. And both within the group of people who've worked on L5R and among the player base, sometimes that is not always a popular, like that is not always a position that people necessarily want because there are times where they're like, I want, I should get everything, right? Or we're making a choice. Um, we should get to choose between, you know, good and gooder, right? And I know that's not proper language, but you know what I mean? And my view is, you should feel like your decision mattered in a way that you find emotionally satisfying. That doesn't necessarily mean you get to avoid all negative outcomes, right? And, and sometimes the, the point of the decision mattering is choosing which negative outcome you choose freely to bear, right? And we're, we're seeing a lot of that kind of storytelling and being, you know, well-received in, in narrative video games now, too, for example. And 
I think that's a good thing, right? And, and not even, you know, sometimes it's the player making the decision. Sometimes it's the character making the decision in a heart-wrenching way that at least you as a player can appreciate was supposed to be heart-wrenching. And I think the game as a whole benefited from players knowing that we cared about their decisions. But part of that is me being able to structure the opportunities to make decisions in a way where I know I can fulfill regardless of what decision is chosen. Right? Like, so that I'm not being asked to do decisions where I'm like, well, if they choose to, you know, have an elephant uh, declared, you know, general of the empire. (laughs) Because, okay, I can do that, but I can't do that without also maintaining the credibility of the empress. Right? Like, I can do that one thing in isolation, but then I have to make the empress do something that looks really crazy, like just really just nonsensical. And either I'm going to go somewhere with the empress doing things that are nonsensical which, you know, again, story prize of the Empress being a dragon, right? They're, they're going to feel bad. Or yes. I do something, <laughs> or I do something really, really zany and creative and so on. But, but the more you push to make something work, the more the setting feels very elastic in a way that's not good, right? You don't want it to be anything can happen no matter how outrageous or, or, uh, strenuous on your ability to believe in the universe, right? You want anything can happen within the bounds of what you believe to be realistic in the universe, right? And so part of that is me being allowed to structure story prizes so that the actual prize being offered uh, cuts down to what I'm prepared to execute on. And and by prepared, I mean having assessed what's realistic to do without damaging the setting as a whole, right? Because um, it's all very well and good to have individually really outrageous and zany and shocking things, but not if that undercuts people's overall engagement in the setting, right? And having said that, you know, different people have different levels of engagement as well. And that was one of the things where, you know, I, I tried to write stories so that you could be a casual fan and enjoy them, or be a serious fan and enjoy different aspects of them or more. And that was always an interesting challenge that was really fun, actually, really enjoyable. But but there's a lot of layers to it, right? And one of the things that, to the extent I, working on the game, could, was to insulate the players from having to worry about all those layers like that, that I had to worry about. Because part of it is it's supposed to be fun and engaging and interesting for the player base. And the minutia of how I arrived at a story is really interesting if you're into asking Fred how how he wrote and planned and plotted. But if you're not into that and you just want to deal with the product, then that should all be, you know, off to the side, right? Um, so really fascinating to to work on and reflect on. But yeah, there were definitely moments where I'm like, really? I have to do what? And uh, sometimes that resulted in some of the best work we did. And sometimes that resulted in, you know, me holding my hands. Usually both. Um, yeah, so. But uh, definitely, I think the issue wasn't more or less structure. It was the kind of structure. And, and like, I think there were definitely times where 
the connection between structure and the end result we were seeking was not as strong as I would have liked it to have been. Yeah. Jay, since you've been sitting there for a while, was there anything you wanted to ask about any of that before we went plunging off into something else? No, I'm... I've been just listening rapidly. I think it's really interesting. I'll let you continue to, to direct it. Let me try to, I guess, drag it back to the... To the extent that you can remember and, you know, are comfortable talking about it, what was what was the sort of narrative that was planned either... Whichever you want to start with, either right at the end, like, what, what, what did you... Have planned for Onyx Edition. What were you thinking? Or well, no, no. I mean, like, what was the general plan? Or I, sure. I mean, I guess the sort of narrative. I mean, if you think back yeah. to the narrative that I suggested, was was there a narrative of changes like that, or was was there more of a long term yeah. plan than I thought, or or how did all that roll out? I can tell you what I can tell you what story generally um, we had planned in terms of the direction uh, we were going to take players was, okay, so Onyx is set a significant amount of time after the fall of the Empire. By significant, I would say, like, long enough for a generation to be raised under the new status quo. Right? Both in the colonies and in Rokugan itself. Rokugan itself would be largely um, subjugated. Not entirely, but largely, right? And uh, the colonies would be essentially free, right? So you've got a generation of people who've grown up having lost their homeland. Um, and narratively, what I wanted to do was divide each clan in two, not for civil war purposes, but to take the same principles, the same values, the same clan identity, uh, and say, what happens to this clan identity when it is in a subjugated way versus not, right? And I'll use line as an example because they're very iconic and easy to grok sort of clan, right? So the lion are going to come back. The lion from the colonies see their duty as freeing Rokugan. Right, and they believe that it was uh, a, a, to some level, a horrible dishonor on the empire to lose Rokugan. They're duty bound to retake it, and they are the right hand of the empire. It's their failure, right? But not only that, that in this righteous endeavor, there can be no compromise. Right, you have to free the empire, and you have to do it the right way. You can't, you know, like just. Very, very straightened by the book. But they also, and they also feel kind of like that they themselves have all failed, not only because they lost the empire, but they're, they're the people who left. Right? They're the descendants of the people who didn't stay and fight to the last. In the empire, and, 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 um, Kanpeki was not going to wipe everyone out, right? Like, you, you're going to be in a situation where you've got an authoritarian ruler who is going to punish any kind of, uh, divergence from his socially accepted norm harshly. No, no, wait a minute, Fred. I thought we were talking about Kanpeki, not every emperor ever. Hmm, but it's a different, you know, <laughs> he's got a different set of values from everyone else, right? Yes. <laughs> you're going to have an empire in Rokugan proper. 
where if you don't compromise, you die. So what is the lion's interpretation of leadership in Bushido, given that reality? Right? These are still lion. They're still honorable. But they've grown up in an environment where if you can't redirect someone else's attentions, then your plan is going to be aborted because it will fail and you will die. Right? And the you will die for a lion is at the bottom. It's whatever mission or an honorable objective I was trying to accomplish will not happen if Kanpeki's forces come down on me here now. So regardless of whether the empire, whether the colonies re freeze the empire or not, you're going to have an internal, not a clash, because there's still lion. But a question of what is the truest expression of our clan philosophy and our clan values, right? And that was what I wanted to do for every clan of you have, for example, on some level, the culture of the empire. What is the truer culture of the empire? The unbroken, continuous culture of Rokugan? Or Rokugan unaffected by external forces? which is the colonies, but which is by definition not unbroken in continuity. There's going to have been a change because they left, but they never had the external occupying force on top of them. So let me ask, so I feel like this is not so much like these are the particular story things that were planned, uh, right. so much as like Fred's pipe dream of what he would do over the following five years of L5R if he had like three fictions a week and yeah, well that was that was kind of the narrative backdrop, right? The <laughs> the actual events would be the the colonies attempt to retake the empire, right? We didn't actually have specific plot plot points about like which battle where or how planned out, but that was the big strokes. The colonies are going like the colonies after a generation are going to try to retake the empire. And free it. And we consciously did not have an outcome planned. We were prepared to have them fail. My presumption is that the this, the default for that would be basically what you kind of what you had at the at the second day of thunder. If a Shadowlands player wins, <laughs> yeah, I don't think I actually. Like, I don't think we'd even reach that point yet, because I was going to argue that, no, the, the, the Empire has to do more than just win, because there are eight non-Shadowlands clans, and I'm, and I'm not going to say, well, these clans are, or these players are, like, helping the Shadowlands. Uh, I wanted it to be, not maybe not 50-50, but more like 40-60, so that there would have to be some kind of, like, three of the top four have to be, you know, supporting the Empire, or... Every time someone wins one of the story prizes at this event, they have to choose to sacrifice the prize outright to get an alternative prize that helps move the empire towards being freed. Right? Like yeah. structurally, I, I but I and I and I know that there were some problems of say the cons march, right? But I think there were ways to surmount that where we're like you choose between two prizes. One of these two is bigger right now. Right. Or, or something, you know, just just that that I, I didn't think it would be if it was just as simple as it comes down to, you know, the grand finals, uh, then it's eight against one. Yeah, I'm OK with that. 
right? And that's not that's not dramatic to the players, even I would argue. And I think that the second day of Thunder was pretty dramatic, and it was like ten to one. Yeah, I think it was too, and that's a good point. But I don't think the players now would have seen it the same way. <sighs> I think it's part of the problem. I mean, there's if it's eight to one, yeah, then you have a better than ten percent chance of basically. This is now permanent status quo, mm-hmm. which is a pretty big setting, especially since I would – there are others who would obviously disagree with me. Mm-hmm. But I, I would posit while a some time frame of the emperor, the empire is conquered by the Shadowlands mm-hmm. is interesting, that if it becomes something like, oh, no, this is just the permanent for the setting, just Jigoku runs the empire, like – yeah, I have a very hard time having that not just effectively end the setting. I think that's. I think discussions like that are why we hadn't written out the result yet. Like, like this, this is something that would take quite a bit of sitting down and sketching it out and planning it out, right? And I think there are lots of good arguments, legitimate arguments for and against various various approaches. Because I don't even think you and I have discussed all of the like viable possibilities, right? No. And like seriously, I, I agree that there are downsides to what I've just said. Absolutely. That's why we hadn't reached a formal we're gonna do this yet. That's exactly why we had because we were analyzing the various ways to structure it. Right? Like and, and yeah, so you're you're getting what I was leaning towards. Uh and what I was, you know, suggesting that knowing that I hadn't considered everything yet, right? Like <laughs> I, I'm of the view that like it was nowhere near even a final opinion. And it was, it was an opinion I knew was not fully informed. It was merely what position do you have right now? Right. And that was where we were. Right. And right. So you're right. There, there are certainly reasons to argue that we should structure it differently. I, I, I don't in any way disagree with you there. Um, I just, you know, like I said, had not reached a firm perspective. Part of the drama of the Day of Thunder, of course, was that it was also who gets to be the emperor. Yes. I don't know if you guys were... Oh, I guess here's the question. Was this... So is our is our colony's empire, is like one of the Awekos still in charge of this rump empire? Or is the whole thing blown up? Just because that, that would affect, to theoretically... That would affect what your options are. I mean, I, I know I'm. My opinion is probably influenced because the Aweko came out of the dragon. But my yeah. my personal sort of notion is that, it rather than blowing through like a fourth dynasty, <laughs> well, I you'd want to have that continuity. But maybe you know, here's yet another new um, new imperial dynasty yeah, would have um, been on the table. I, I believe that the plan was one of the Awekos makes it out and the other doesn't, and that. Yeah, and that not not that they die either. It's just that one of them, and so one of the things is uh, that, and I believe it was one of the dragon rules was be was to be keeping the air safe because Kanpeki is going to be spending ongoing efforts trying to find and kill that air, right? I think that that was actually not one of the dragon rules, which. Make okay. it, which was what that well I, because I I remember that being one of the things is that I was is that the 
I mean, if you're talking about the paths. Oh yeah, yeah, okay. No, I mean, right. I, I think that was like specifically like that was not in any. They voted that down. Yeah, yeah. No, 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 no. Yeah, yeah. That wasn't offered to the dragon. Oh, it wasn't. Nope. Interesting. That was not well originally. Well, originally we. I mean, right? We've been through this before. I, I, I thought right. the dragon got a lousy set of things. I want to say that, and man, it's, this is part of the thing with the time, right? We had the path. This was the the one where you had a. One of the player submitted paths mm-hmm. was a really like was something that the dragon didn't have, which was a hard out fight against. Right. And it was really supposed to be like an anti challenge things, and I think wrapped up in that may have been a defend the Aweko mm-hmm. kind of element, and that was one of the ones where the the then AEG published to be voted on version of that path mm-hmm. had language in it. It was like oh. But your guys are all going to end up tainted from being so friendly with the spider in this. And I, I remember that. Yeah, because the, the guy who submitted that path was pissed. Yeah, right. Because and I he felt it was like the opposite of what he had actually, like the players had actually said they wanted to see as an right. option. Right. The challenge there, and and I, I'm now that you're talking about it, it's kind of refreshing my memory, right? Was and we've discussed this before, I think. Yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately, I uh, yeah, I, I don't know if I have the stamina to like like let's go back and look at what all the path choices are and talk about how those might have been implemented and oh like one of the challenges with freeform paths was fitting them into where the story is supposed to go as a whole, right? And and one of the challenges, and it always comes back to Dragon when you and I talk, because you're a Dragon fan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Was that Dragon, the way, and and I I don't know to what extent this is a function of the vocal minority, and I don't know how much this is reflected of Dragon players as a whole. The vocal minority of Dragon players the way they define dragon, dragon had no flaws. Yes, we have certainly discussed this before. <laughs> and and one of the things that I think is good about the dragon, and I think that most players are into about the dragon, is the idea that they're enigmatic and mysterious, and that they're sometimes incomprehensible, right? And that that is both a virtue and a flaw, in my view. But the way many players, dragon players, defined that there was no flaw. It was only, we're wiser than you and you just don't understand, and so when people don't listen to us, they're just going, they have to be proven wrong, or Dragon is being undercut. And one of the things that and I was ignorant of the fact that the player wanted this to be specifically we fight the Shadowlands, right? Is that that, the, the Protect the Aweko goal can be used to help show how the dragon approach everything differently from the rest of the empire, right? In that case, it could have been used to develop dragon themes that I think most people would agree are core dragon themes in a way that fulfills, can, that moves the whole story forward and is true to dragon, right? And so, to the extent that it just lost what the player wanted, that's just information not getting to my to me, right? But in terms of having that, because one of the elements of Dragon historically 
has always been that we're going to make the choice we think is right. And to the extent that you disagree, that's nice. Right. And, and don't get me wrong. If you're wise, I will listen to you because I'm a dragon and I am open to considering outside perspectives. But ultimately, the dragon are very much a clan that don't answer to the moral codes or the social norms of other clans. And if they decide this is necessary, they'll do it. And that is not all upside. And it's not all downside either, right? Um, and one of the areas where I was like hoping to be able to explore with that in the upcoming arc is that the dragon are a clan that they're not wired morally the same way as the rest of the Empire. Right? They're just not. And that has meaningful tension, not just we're right, you're wrong. Although, you know, and one of the things that I was, yeah, that, but that's a segue, right? Like that, that, but that was the intention behind that path choice. But yeah, if, if the dragon players as a whole just wanted, we're going to fight, I, I would have decoupled it, but. I mean, I know that that's what that player wanted. And this, I mean, this is what I, what I said at the time, and right, this was speculative, so I may have been wrong, was that I thought that this path would win. This was actually not my preferred path because while I in, Enjoyed the sentiment. It as written was not super dragony. This path starts off with a quote which I pulled, which is I, I don't remember who wrote the fiction, but it was from one of the fictions. It was, and this is the quote from the fiction: "Was the dragon have watched over your people, Ken Pecky? We have taught them, shielded yes. them as best as we can from the other clans, so they can earn their place in the empire. But we have never forgotten what they are. If you see weakness, you might attack the Ueko dynasty, and then I suppose we will have to kill you." Yes, the, uh, Greg Wong and I talked, and Aaron's. Oh, I forget Aaron's last name. He's a friend of mine that I know that I see regularly in real life, and I forgot Freed. Freed. Freed yeah, I was going to say, it's yeah. F-R-E-D-E. I don't actually know how to pronounce yeah, it because I've only yeah. seen it on that. I'm like, sorry, Aaron, that was, you're going to hear this at some point. I just had a momentary brain like brain failure. Yeah, so, um, so the original proposal was a take the Aweko air, hide them. You can't just like be in one place where they can come attacking you. Hide them, you run around, and then you go on this guerrilla campaign trying to assassinate Kenpaki, which, of course, you would not actually get to do. And I feel like that's too many... I actually felt like that was too many things. I would have... It probably was. I would have put the focus solely on protecting the air. Um, but well, but and, the, the, the big thing was that if I got... The, the big switch was that it went from protect the Iweko and aggressively fight the spider to you will protect the Iweko, but then... By, viol- by violence if necessary, and particularly when it comes to the spider. But then it says, thanks to your association with the spider, you'll mm-hmm. have to, you know, work closely with the spider, and you'll get tainted. And, and like, like when you read the actual final thing, it's like, wait a minute, we're going to protect the Iweko by being such good buddies with the spider that... Well, let's... let's so, let's I mean, take- that's the... that that. I, well, I, I don't want to spend forever breaking down what the path would be, but my point was that there sure. was a there was a significant shift in the tone where the path went from aggressively anti-spider to you're working so closely with the spider that you're just going to get tainted all over the place. Not well, not like a, your crab getting tainted because you're fighting them, but well, actually, let's 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 examine this a little bit longer because I think it's worthwhile. The idea underlying it was. There are times where you're like the spider still remembers that the dragon showed them like kindness and respect and so on, right? That's why you you dragon can be effective in protecting Iweko because you get a little bit more slack than everyone else does. But if you're prepared to use that slack, sometimes that means instead of killing a spider, you talk to them. Right? Sometimes that means 
oh, they're getting close to knowing where the heir's location is. We're going to feed them the location of some other clan's rebel stronghold. Because that way, all of the activity they, they discovered will be attributed to this other clan's activities. We can get the air clear. That sort of compromise. And, and sometimes that means you're going to be close physically. And there is always risk of taint when, or, or for that matter, spiritual corruption, right? Like, Dragon as a clan in the history of the setting has not been particularly resistant to spiritual corruption compared to the norm, right? They're average-ish, right? And all of those things were meant to be encompassed in there, right? Because, yeah, if, if, you, are, if you are dealing with the Shadowlands at all, either fighting them or, or dealing with them, you risk taint, right? Like, the, the people who fight the Shadowlands get tainted just as fast. It's a different kind in that um, many of them are, you know, tainted through contact rather than tainted through being exposed to new ideas that are not exactly uh, approved by the Empire. But, you know, there's, there is no shortage of well-meaning characters who end up tainted. Certainly, especially when you go old-school taint, not just in a, like, old versus new mechanics taint, right. but, like, the, the, the general... The right. feeling of the team was just brutal right. when the game started, and that kind of slacked off. I, I guess, well, I mean, I think it slacked off overall. I guess part of that is because you had a clan of tainted people, but I mean, but they, they, it slacked off generally. Um, my, my, on, on the taint issue, um, I, I kind of actually, I had to do a discussion of this not that long ago, so it's fresh in my mind, right? I like the taint as a horror element myself. And this is, I'm not speaking for the team as a whole, right? Although I was the number two guy in the story. So I guess, you know, I am on some level saying this is how I would have pushed it. And no one really disagreed with me, but like, I don't necessarily have consensus on this. I like the taint as a horror element. And part for me of the taint as a horror element is you actually can't predict how the taint will affect you. If, it, if it's consistent, it becomes a little bit more like a disease or a condition that is analyzable. And part of the horror for me was, at least as a as a tool for horror, was it's inconsistent as a feature, right? And so what taints someone else might not taint you. Well, and that would have been a different take on it, though, too, because the taint, even when it was more brutal, it was still fairly... Consistent. It was just consistently brutal, mm. right? I would argue that Bearers of Jade has the inconsistency in it, right? Like Bearers of Jade talks about like some guy falling down, and then there's just random like tainted bug out in the middle of a land that has never had taint before, and then they're tainted. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm <laughs> no, no, I know. I mean, but I, I, I know that we have talked about Bearers of Jade before, and the whole like basically the entire. Yes. Uh, supplement has to be taken allegorically or else... I, I think so. But but what I mean, though, is just, for example, Masurobun gets tainted from a goblin bite. The number of people who actually get tainted from a goblin bite is low. It's not zero, but it's low, right? And he happens to roll down on his earth check. And so the taint in general... Like, I mean, there are, in First Ed, in various books, there's floating around things like, this person casts a curse, and then you're tainted. 
Are they Sukai? No, they just cursed you. <laughs> right? Like, my view was the vast majority of those stories in the setting are not true, but not all of them are not true. That, that was kind of how I viewed how the setting works best with Taint, where, where it's inconsistent enough that in spite of generations of Kuni, of, of Asako, of Kuni and Asako primarily, um, doing research on how to fight and prevent and treat and, you know, whatever the taint, it hasn't been consistent enough that they've made any real progress. Right? And, and there has to be a reason for that. And one of the things that I like to use as the potential reason is because the taint is not consistent. That actually the reason they couldn't figure out how it, it worked in a systematic way is because it doesn't work in a systematic way, full stop. And, you know, not everyone... And, and that's not the only formulation, but that was kind of a general value underlying it, as far as I was concerned, in terms of just how to deal with the taint. Yeah, right? But but in in terms of the broader treatment of the taint. Um, I do think like for all that, like the, the taint was portrayed as being like the taint was portrayed as being very hardcore in the earlier part of the canon. And yet in spite of that, there were fewer fictions too. So there was a lot more left to the imagination. Right. And so mainly we were drawing, I think from the RPG. And one of the things that you know, I, I, I like to to go with is if you have a super virulent taint, then you actually can't write satisfying stories because then the Shadowlands has to be stupid or it just wins. Right? Because all you have to do is taint a bunch of soldiers on the other side, and then you've won, really, right? Because those soldiers are gone and now they're um, either they all seppuku or they're a yeah. permanent of the Emperor's resource and the Empire's resources, right? So the taint cannot be consistent and virulent at the same time without me implicitly under underselling Shadowlands forces elsewhere, or it just doesn't work. Right? At least that's my argument. And, and I, I think it's it's correct. But, you know, obviously I think I'm correct because otherwise I wouldn't say that, right? Um, well, I, I, I'm, I'm just going to pause for a minute to say I, I love that you just said that. Because I've I've always said that it's like one of those like it's it's incredibly it sounds incredibly arrogant of like well of course I think I'm right but at the same time I, it, there's something wrong if I don't think I'm right because why would I hold that opinion if I didn't think yes if if you think your opinion is wrong then what you're actually saying is I know I need more data <laughs> right which actually you know sometimes is fair right but yeah it, you you obviously probably don't think the, the conclusion you've drawn is wrong unless say unless you think oh i made a mistake somewhere could you show me where i made the mistake which actually is legit right like you know that is kind of the nature of say hey could you check my my work on my math calculations which actually you know good habit to be in how much of that vision that you just talked about was how much did that change with the introduction of the player paths and how much of that was sort of what the broad story arc was aimed at regardless. This, this overall vision came after the player paths. 
or at least kind of, I kind of made it concrete after the player paths. So I didn't see any contradiction there. It, the player paths were more like, right now, given a time of finite resources, because the players didn't know that there would be finite resources and quite the level of problems for the Empire as, at, like, they were called upon to vote before we revealed kind of the scope. But the idea was, the Empire is going to have finite resources. What is your clan focusing on in the early part? Right? And I say finite resources in time, personnel, you know, resource, resource as well, all of that, right? And so that would kind of be the narrative backdrop in which everything else happens. So I, I didn't see any problem kind of integrating this, because this was a broader, bigger picture kind of uh, way of looking at what does the Empire as a whole... Uh, what what does each clan focus? What is each clan doing, which is the context in which the other things are examined? So I I didn't think there would be a problem there simply because I came to these this general view of maybe we want maybe we want to tell the story this way or have it be about this after the past had already been picked. I didn't think there'd be any problem, but like, you know, also I have been incorrect before. I don't think I'm incorrect about that, but the possibility does remain. At the time the player paths were put out there, Onyx was basically locked. So if a clan, let's say Crab, had mm-hmm. actually voted, right? And, and it, I guess, sorry, for that. Onyx was locked at the time that the the player paths were put out there. I don't think Onyx was locked at that point, actually. I think we were prepared to move back production if necessary to accommodate the past choices. Okay. I'll say, yeah, because that would have, I mean, if you actually had something like the crab choose to join Ken Pecky, that would, I think, have a, well, man, I, I don't know if, I don't know if that's actually a better answer or not. I was going to say, because the, uh, that would have had just a drastic effect. I would think that it would have a drastic effect on what you would want there to be as far as their cards, right? You one of the things that you yeah. want, I think with this product is you want your story to sync up with what's going on in your cards. So if the crab were all tainted and that was not reflected in the cards, that would be bad. On the other hand, going back to the design team and saying, Well, we need you to completely redo all the crab cards. You have a month. Seems right. awful as well. So my, my recollection is we were prepared to set it back if necessary. I don't remember if we did or didn't, but but I think that was absolutely part of the plan. Hmm. Again, this is based on my memory, right? But no, but, yeah, yeah. But I think we were prepared to do that, just flat out. So, like I said earlier, my impression from the outside was that there was a plan originally for there to be more development before we got right to the end of the the conflict between the brothers and the determination of who was going to be the next heir, and that that felt like it got cut a bit short by, you know, like that it would have gone through the end of the year instead of just ending right at 20 festivals. Mm-hmm. Uh, it felt like that that got, perhaps got truncated so that the basically prelude to Onyx edition could take up the rest of the the year. Is that certainly correct? And if And if so... What else did you guys have in mind for the the Brothers Destiny? Mm, I'm trying to remember that. Um, I don't remember whether or not that was what happened, like, in, up behind the scenes. I think we were a little bit more, and, and also we might have, that, 
like right about that changeover might have been when we brought back brought on the new members. But yeah, like I, I don't recall a conscious change, but I also like the Brothers Destiny stuff, I'm just like I'm not hmm. Yeah, I just don't remember whether or not there was an, uh, an actual change of plans or whether it was always meant to be more of a subplot that didn't get presented as a subplot. So on that one, I'm not, I'm not, you know, I'm, my memory is not being helpful. Yeah. That's kind of the longest journey. But... Okay. Fred is not a good rememberer. As <laughs> Well, then I guess I guess rewinding it even further, r- rewinding further would would not help. I don't know. I guess we could go all the way back and be like, so what happened with that Lotus Edition Crane Clan becoming enlightened thing? Because they got nothing out of that prize. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> mm. The enlightenment arc was definitely, you know, we discussed earlier about how sometimes I am asked to execute. I don't remember what the directions were after the Enlightenment Dark, but I do remember being like, what? what? Really? What? Huh? What? Huh? A little bit in relation to, well, any clan can be enlightened? Don't get me wrong. Within the Empire, individuals of every clan have done so. But the idea of kind of common enough to be remarked upon in any single clan was uh, challenging. I feel like that mostly just, that was one of those prizes where like, okay, well, here's the prize. Here's your terrible, awful stronghold we're going to give you. Got to be in competition for worst stronghold ever. There have been a lot of really bad strongholds, man. I know, but, but Prosperous Plain City was completely worthless. Not a stronghold that doesn't ignore honor requirements. Which I one are that, you? There was one of the, one of the Naga strongholds does not ignore honor requirements. I think that one is very high on the list because it also had no discount for forests. <laughs> right? Um, I don't know. I mean, I think it's partially also like Prosperous Plain City was later in the design arc. Yes. I mean, you you the further back you go, you, your expectations more... are higher as the craft of game design is more developed. That's fair, right? Like yeah, Prosperous Plain City, like you, man, I. I'd yeah. have to look back and see what the Naga Stronghold did. Now I'm now I'm curious which Naga Stronghold that was. I forget, but there there's one. It might have been like a learn learn to play set stronghold. Oh well, I mean that's. I mean, and in terms of most reviled, it is very difficult to beat the Spirit Stronghold. Well, but the, the Spirit Stronghold was broken good. <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. <laughs> Not the same thing. So, it, it, and and the fact is. In the industry, right? Like it's it's over twenty years. Players have higher expectations because they should, right? And stuff that was okay, you know, 50, five years in, no way it would pass muster now, right? In terms of relative balance and so on. And that's just because players are more demanding and more sophisticated. And that's totally fair. I am too, right? Like I play games, and and you know, I would not play games with the insanely broken stuff. But but the standard of insanely broken now is is the tolerances are finer than Oh yes and, they are. Absolutely. You know? Absolutely. It's the Naga Stronghold. It mm-hmm. was the fixed Naga Stronghold in the Siege of Sleeping Mountain. And 
not only does it not have the beneficial attacks about negating all fear effects on your Naga cards and the if you control no Shadowlands, you ignore honor requirements, but yeah. the ability is to bow the stronghold to shuffle a personality or follower from your discard pile back into the deck. Oh, golly. That is truly atrocious. I'm, I don't think of that because that was shoved in a... In a learn to right. yeah, it was in a learn to play set, and I don't, I don't know if that was really intended to actually be functional, but yes, that is a hideously awful, awful, <laughs> awful stronghold. There you go. Right? Yes. Uh, <laughs> but, so, yeah. so there have been no shortage of unsatisfying strongholds over the years, but again, twenty year old. Yeah, but PPC just for whatever reason that one just sticks in my. Uh... Yeah, sure. No, I, and I'm not defending it. Like <laughs> I have designed cards over the history of the game, but I have never designed that many, so I I don't have a horse in that particular race. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, like like I said, all I can do is just shrug and say, "Yeah, you are correct, sir." Yeah. So I guess you we should have led off with this, but looking back. You did L5R for a, a long time. Is there, I guess you already got the chance to ask, to answer this question right away at the beginning, but I guess with any more time to think about it, is there any, is there anything else you want to comment on or, I mean, make it as juicy as possible. You know, God, you know what? I would just like to say that I hate Todd Roland. He's a terrible human being and, or whatever, you know, we love you, Todd. It's just Fred <laughs> who hates you, not me. No, I mean. Man, I remember save the ogres. Um, come, come visit me, Todd. While while I'm still in Georgia, you've got like 11 months. So, where are you moving to? Uh, DC. Oh yeah, yeah, cool. Hopefully, I will get to visit you uh, sometime in January, February next year. I'm not. Oh, wait, you're not there yet. Okay, not there yet, so- and I will not. I will, I'm, I will be relocating after next school year. So. Okay, so in other words, this won't work. Um, yes, uh, the important thing is that I have to figure out, I have to make sure that bet- with uh, the moving mm-hmm. and and like all the relocating and the house changes and all that, that I can still get to Gen Con. <laughs> you have to know your priorities. Um, well, how can I be a respectable podcast that covers L5R? Uh, <laughs> I mean that only so the, <laughs> um, I, I, I working on L5R and meeting all the people uh, who've who've played or worked on the game or or or, or, or nicer but are interested in what we do has been a real privilege. Right? It's been a lot of fun, and I'd love to keep doing it. But FFG hasn't talked to me or, as far as I know, any of us. Because the level of passion and energy and involvement in this game is different in kind from that which I've seen for any other game. Right? I mean, sure, there are some games that are so big that if you take their best players and most involved players, they, you know, they, they can match up with us. But on a per cap, per capita basis, there's something special about L5R, right? There's something special about saying you as a player are part of the story. There's something special about, you know, being able to say that most of the players know the designers and story writers and brand people personally rather than just professionally. And I am super grateful to have been able to work on this game uh, for so long and for all of you. And I really hope that more often than not, 
And more intensely than not, you liked our work and enjoyed it and thought it was worthwhile to be a part of this this ride because uh, it certainly has been for me and it's only fair for it to be for you guys too. Because, like, I wouldn't know you guys, for example, but for L5R, right? I wouldn't be doing, like, the stuff at PAX and the stuff in video games, but for working on L5R. I would have maybe half as many friends, maybe less. Just because I've met people through L5R and through, you know, people who said, oh, this is, you know, a guy who works in, you know, all of that stuff. And, you know, I am really grateful to all of you. Really, really, really am. And, uh, you know, you have my love and respect. And, you know, if FFG eventually says, hey, Fred, do you want to work on L5R? Chances are pretty good, I will say yes. You know, it depends on the, the specifics, but chances are really high that I would say yes, and I'd love to. Uh, and if not, it's been, you know, thank you very much to all of you for giving me this chance, because uh, I am deeply, deeply moved by everything. So, I mean, juicy? No, not particularly juicy, because, uh, like, when it's all said and done, would I do it again? Absolutely. Absolutely. But, you know, you know, I guess I'm a little bit greedy. 14 years is not enough, huh? But, you know, I, I really hope that uh, whatever FFG puts out, uh, A, that I'm a part of it, and B, that it's awesome. Because uh, I think L5R, as an IP and as a group of players, is special. And it's not just that people are into it. There's something that elevates it. Um, and I'd really like to see that continue. So, yeah, like I said, not, not the juiciest, but uh, very true. Okay. Well, I think I have more than used up my strange assembly time like for today. So. Uh, pretty sure my wife is going to go very heavily on the more than you. <laughs> Between the multiple episodes, we're almost at the four-hour mark now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, L5R players, I, I hope you enjoyed what I'm guessing is likely to be the... Uh, the last uh, story podcast, unless uh, FFG kicks up a story team and then makes them available on podcasts, which seems pretty improbable. Yeah, actually, this, FFG is a lot more tight-lipped, I Are guess. There? Yeah, about their, whatchamacallit, about their communications with players. It, yes. They have a website, and they put something on that website every single weekday. And that is their thing, right? They, they they've got the very like long range rollouts of everything. Like if you're like if you're on the Living Card Games, which is what L5R is going to be, like they they will announce that a pack is coming out and start giving hints about what's going to be in the pack like nine months in advance, maybe. Right. It's, it's at least six, and then you know, I mean, there's there's a definite uh, a definite way that that works. Right. So anyhow. We'll uh, we'll see how it uh, all goes. Okay. But uh, until then, uh, you've been listening to Strange Assembly, your tabletop gaming podcast. 
You can find us on the web at www.strangeassembly.com. You can read uh, reviews or other articles or subscribe to the podcast there. You can also subscribe to us on iTunes. We always appreciate it if you leave a rating or review on iTunes. It helps other players get discover to have- the show, especially if it's a positive rating review. I'm just saying. <laughs> At Strange Assembly on Twitter, facebook.com slash strangeassembly. You can always uh, also email me directly. I always like to hear from the audience. I'm chris at strangeassembly.com. But until then, for Jay Earl and Fred Wan, I'm Chris Stevenson, and this is Strange Assembly. Never stop gaming. week.